Can I have the first slide up, please? The house at One Glebe Terrace, on the outside, was structurally sound. But on the inside, it was a broken home. That's my house. Um, I've mentioned before that uh, my father is an alcoholic. It has caused uh, countless days of turmoil uh, in our family over a prolonged period uh, to the point that I don't have a memory of a time when I don't really know that my dad was not an alcoholic. Needless to say, this created many family tensions, particularly in the relationship between my dad and my mum. And it created, inevitably, really, separation. And it's a painful thing. It's a painful thing to the point that 16 years later, this week, as I sat across the table from my mum and mentioned the fact that this Sunday I was preaching on divorce, uh, her mouth tightened as if to keep something back, and her eyes filled. Uh, The divorce came through on the grounds of irretrievable circumstances, as it was put. Irretrievable? Not sure, speaking personally. But it typifies the kind of broken home that we see in our culture. It's just one example of a whole myriad of reasons that are given for marriages that began with joy and happiness and family celebrations torn apart. The pain is hard to describe. Some of you experience it. Some of you know exactly what it's like. Um, Hard to describe. Probably grief is the best word to describe because it does feel like something has died. In one sense, I read this week one author say, actually, um, it would have been better if there was death because death somehow has, is painful, but in some senses clean. But this just seems divorced. Sometimes it at times feels like an unclean longer drawn out this is what we see in our culture divorce for many many different reasons impacting society families children it has collateral damage but it's not just in society is it it happens in the church Uh, Sometimes we find ourselves in church life with, as I'm sure you know, many of us have heard the statistics where really there isn't that much difference between cultural statistics and church statistics when it comes to the matter of divorce and that. There is some difference in relation to the reasons given, but not always. So adultery is more often a reason within the church context than it is in society, whereas in society it's mostly the fact that, well, we've kind of grown apart. 
We no longer want the same things. Or misbehavior is termed as the reason for divorce. But in church, it's more likely to be adultery. But still, it's a major problem. And it's a pastoral problem. We have to address this. And not just for pastors who are in counseling situations, but for the entire church. Uh, We have people among us who can empathize with the very things that I've been describing in the last few minutes because they've gone through it. Maybe some are going through it even at this time. People who felt the regret, the anger, the guilt, the shame, the upheaval of adjustment, having to move house, watching friends fade away because you mostly just did things in couples and now you're not a couple. People who feel lonely and isolated can be can experience even within a local church context a church that is supposed to be a family a low level shunning that is nothing short of disgraceful we need to know what the bible teaches on this we need to know how to respond when it comes to this subject so would you turn with me to matthew chapter 5 I'm going to read two passages today. We have Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. And then we're going to flick over to Matthew chapter 19 as well, where we have Jesus again speaking on divorce. He speaks about it first here in the Sermon on the Mount and then in Matthew 19. Let's read Matthew 5, 31 to 32 first. It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Over to chapter 19. And I'll read from verse 3. Some Pharisees, verse 3, came to him, that is Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that we give, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Well, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others because that, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven, the one who can accept this should accept it. 
Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Let's start there, dealing with this difficult issue. Uh, Jesus is, of course, in Matthew 5, in a different situation. He is speaking to his disciples. Uh, We've seen over in chapter 5, verse 1, he is speaking to them. He has just warned them that adultery is not just committed with the body, but with the heart, through the eyes. In other words, what we learned last time in Matthew was to look at someone lustfully and imagine the sexual possibilities is adultery. But in verses 31 to 32, Jesus says there's another way that you can commit adultery. And this is a specific focus here. And that is by wrongful divorce. Do you see it in verse 32? But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. Here's the thing that we're supposed to see in this. Cause. We are not to be those who lead people into sin. We who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are supposed to be the people who help to lead people, where? Out of sin. And so the scenario in this situation is actually very simple. Two Christians, Ben and Holly, they get married in their local church. I do solemnly swear, they say. Uh, Till parted by death, they say. But they grew apart. Their marriage, almost like an unkept garden, grew thick with weeds of resentment, of disappointment. Holly tried everything she could to save her marriage, uh, but Ben just thought it was far too messy. It was easier just to move to another garden, as far as he was concerned. So he left her, and two years later divorced her. Uh, Here's the problem. Uh, That divorce does not constitute grounds for divorce according to the maker of marriage, the Lord God himself. Ben may well seek a legal acknowledgement from a court to end the marriage, but is disobeying God, sinning against God in the process. Now what Jesus does in Matthew 5 is directs the eyes uh, of the reader and the ears of the hearer forward. He directs us forward into the future to ask, well, what happens when Holly meets a nice man? Someone who loves her, someone who cares for her. And they get married. Well, according to Jesus, she has just committed adultery and so has the guy who married her. He is, in effect, marrying another man's wife. And what Jesus is trying to help us to see here is that Ben, the first guy, the first marriage, is the cause. Jesus actually lays the blame at his feet. So not only is Jesus saying in regards to adultery that we need to be concerned about the sinful, uh, the sinful desires and tendencies and leanings of our hearts when it comes to sexual immorality, he's saying we must not take any kind of sin lightly, but take great care. Not to cause anyone else to sin by following after our, our tendencies. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus speaks really very, very strongly on this. It's a warning passage, effectively. He says, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Jesus is a realist, okay? 
They're bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come, he says. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. That's how seriously Jesus takes sin. That's how seriously Jesus treats it when there is the prospect of another person, you or me, causing someone else to sin. In other words, it's better for us to face death by drowning than cause someone else to sin. You get the message. It is a strong warning. Don't do it. (laughs) In other words, don't do it. We are not supposed to be those who lead people into sin or cause people to sin. We are to be those who lead people out of sin. Therefore, we should be eager to make sure that we understand what is it that qualifies as biblical grounds for divorce in this particular category that we're talking about today. What are they? There's a lot of debate about this, isn't there? Is there one? Is there two? Are there two? Are there more? What about nowadays? You know, there are we seem to be quite far along the line from you know, 20 centuries ago. What does, it, what does it look like for us? Well, when you go over to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3, you'll realize this isn't actually a new debate. It's a very, very old one, actually. Because in 19.3, they're asking the Pharisees, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, We have in our hands historical Jewish documents called Mishnah, which basically tells us about a debate that was ongoing between two rabbis and their respective kind of theological schools. Uh, One might be considered the school of Shammai, a a very conservative school, if you like. A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. Right. Then there is the more liberal view of the school of Hillel, He may divorce her even if she spoils a dish for him. It's written down there. It's crazy. He may divorce her even if he has found another fairer than she. And these are the guys that Jesus is quoting in Matthew chapter 5. Who say, as long as you give your wife a certificate of divorce, it's cool. That's paraphrase. It's all right. If you've got, I've I've given her a certificate. I'm fine, kept the law. What? But rather than entering into this debate among the rabbis, Jesus then just rebukes these guys first and foremost for their short-sightedness and secondly for their misunderstanding. Jesus says to them, first of all, you've got a problem with your eyes. You are focusing, focusing on the wrong thing. You want to know how far you can go without breaking the law. That's what's behind the Pharisees' question. You want to see how close you can get to the electric fence without getting fried, without understanding that the whole purpose of the electric fence is to repel you, to make sure you stay far away from it and not get as close as you can until you electrocute yourself. In other words, Jesus said, look, you're, you're just asking the wrong question. You're asking, what are the grounds of divorce? But your question should be, what are the ways that we can uphold God's design for marriage? 
These guys were getting this question from Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 really has only four verses that talk about divorce and that in all of the New Testament. It mentions something about how a divorce can be given if there is uncleanness or indecency. It's actually a very ambiguous and vague word. But they're debating this word. And Jesus is saying to them in this situation, when they're asking just the wrong question, you guys, you guys are asking how far you can go. What qualifies for divorce? You guys are looking at Deuteronomy 24. What does Jesus say? You should be looking at Genesis 1 and 2. You should be looking at what God made. About God's intention, what it was supposed to be like. Marriage as God designed it, the great perfect architect who made them male and female. He points to Genesis 1, to the creation of humankind as male and female, then to Genesis 2, the institution of marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, become one flesh in what is an exclusive union. One man, one woman, leaving their families forming one new family. And we see in that that God has designed marriage to be a life-changing union and the ultimate expression, not just of giving your body, but whole self-giving, everything. Not just sexually, socially. Everything about your mind, your heart, your body, your money, everything. Whole self-giving. Exclusively to one person not just a life-changing union though it's a permanent union it's lifelong a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman and we know it's intended that way because in verse 6 it says that God does the joining and then continues in verse 6 what God has joined together Jesus says let man not separate what's his point you're focusing on the wrong thing you're asking what are the grounds for divorce when instead you should be asking What are the ways that we can uphold God's great design for marriage as he intended it? Is that a challenge for us? Maybe if you're in a sticky situation just now in a difficult relationship, what are you focusing your eyes on? Are you thinking, I wonder what constitutes divorce? I wonder wonder how, how I can go about doing this and get out of this situation without sinning well Jesus is saying in effect cast away your fantasies about what life would look like outside of your marriage stop looking outside turn around look inside and deal with what's in there concentrate on what a healthy marriage looks like and seek help in building it we'll get to that we'll get to that it all raises a question though okay if, and this is the question that they raise in chapter 19, verse 7. If marriage is exclusive and permanent, how come Moses commanded it in the book of Deuteronomy? And this is where Jesus corrects their misunderstanding. What is the biblical warrant for divorce? Is a question we're asking. Well, we see in Matthew 19, 7, and also in Matthew 5, 31, that they think it's a command. They think it's a command. You see what they're doing? They actually lay emphasis, as they quote Deuteronomy 24, they lay emphasis on the giving of a certificate 
as if that's where the righteousness was. The righteousness lay. It's crazy. Okay, wife, here's your certificate. Yes, I've kept the law. Good, God is pleased with me. No, he's not. But not only that, they refer to the certificate of divorce as this, these commands of Moses, but it's not a command. It's nowhere near a command. Moses outlines it in Deuteronomy 24 as a concession. And Jesus speaks of it as a concession in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, still. So this Deuteronomy passage is a paragraph containing lots of conditional clauses. If this happens, then this happens. And and if this happens, then there are five ifs in there. Shows you how conditional the whole situation is. If this, if this, if that, if that, if that, then give her a certificate of divorce and you cannot remarry her. There is certainly no command to a married person to divorce their spouse, nor is there any encouragement to do so. So Jesus returns to them and says, yes, Moses allows for divorce, but this was a concession to human sin. It wasn't a requirement. It wasn't that someone has committed adultery in this relationship, therefore we must get a divorce. It doesn't say that, actually. It is a concession, it's permitted, but it's not a command. You don't have to do it. And much is to be said for those who forgive much is to be said for those who stick at it and who can work at things that's to be commended faithfulness despite adultery can be one of the most God honoring things that we can see divorce was a concession and it still is it's not a command so Jesus still upholds that divorce is wrong simply because it's not God's intention for marriage he says that in Matthew 19 But before we see anything else about divorce and remarriage, I think we do have to feel the weight of this teaching. We have to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees want to talk about acceptable reasons for divorce. That can be what our culture wants to talk about. That can be what we as a church sometimes want to talk about. But Jesus wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage. They want to ask for a qualification or to try and figure out the grounds for when a marriage can be broken. Jesus wants to talk about why marriages shouldn't be broken. But still, we must talk about this concession that Jesus permits. Divorce is permitted on the grounds of adultery. As it says in Matthew 5.32, Jesus' words, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery and in Matthew 19.9 it says I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery so there's the concession there's where the permission lies it's with marital infidelity it's unfaithfulness it's adultery it's the one exception that Jesus makes to the requirement of marriage to be lifelong. And we can understand why. Because that sexual immorality, uh, uniting to someone else who is not your husband or who is not your wife, seriously defiles and indeed disrupts this one flesh union that the Lord God has intended for marriage. 
so it is permitted. But as I've said, it's not required. It is an accommodation. Even as Jesus says in Matthew 19, to the hardness of people's hearts. Now, I'm the first to admit, this is not all that the Bible has to say on this subject of divorce. And great care needs to be taken to put it all together. For example, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, on a passage that Peter Granger preached on recently uh, in our evening services. You can search for that on our website and download it and listen to it. Uh, The Apostle Paul introduces another exception, that of desertion, where um, there there is a couple where one of them is a believer, uh, the other one is not, the other one just does not want to live with a believer. And instead of the disruption and unsettledness and the pain in that situation, the Apostle Paul acknowledges a right for a person to let that unbelieving spouse divorce. I don't have time to go into that or all the complexity of that. I don't have time to go into the complexity of when remarriage is allowed. In 1 Corinthians 7, suffice to say it's when a spouse dies. Otherwise, it seems like mostly Paul is advising people that whatever situation you are in, remain as you are. Remain as you are. So in other words, if you have, you have been divorced on what it seems from today's text we understand are unbiblical grounds, the wrong response is then, having been remarried, to break that marriage. No, Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 7 is, remain as you are, and remain as you are, repent for past sin under God's welcoming grace, and live with all your might for the glory of God in that God-honoring marriage that you are now in. I don't have time to go into the complexity of this. Indeed, 10 of you could come forward after this service with different scenarios, and I would have to spend two or three hours walking through these things with you. There is another question, though, that I think we need to address before I move on to application, and that is, what about abuse? What about physical abuse? What about emotional abuse? Some say, oh, well, the Bible doesn't seem to have any grounds for divorce in that respect, does it? Well, in response to that, immediately... Um, no it doesn't but actually it does deal with it Um, the Bible has a lot to do a lot to say about what to do in those kinds of situations in particular in Matthew chapter 18 a passage which is all about if you just look back with you uh, in verses 15 to 20 what's it talking about here it's talking about church discipline It's talking about church discipline, or as I like to call it, church-based reclamation of sinners. The Bible doesn't call people in their situations, in marriages, particularly where abuse is evident, whether physical or emotional, just to simply get your head down and get on with it and just work at it. No. Um, (laughs) No, definitely not. They are to, people are to seek the help of the church. Sure, if you are the victim of any kind of abuse, physical or emotional, you should appeal to your spouse to stop it immediately. 
And if not, then Matthew 18 is, is your guide. We must seek the help of one another in the church. This is a church family. Local churches are supposed to be church families. That's why we seek to encourage membership so that we can be united in these things. The leaders can then be involved. Other members of the church can be involved to call the sinning spouse to repentance. And it may even lead to a spouse being excommunicated if they are unrepentant, if they will not stop in their abuse or in their adultery or anything else to being told to leave the church, to be treated as an unbeliever in as strong a fashion as that as if to say, you're acting in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the extent that we are concerned that you might be going to hell, that you may not be in the kingdom of God, we're sending you out. In the hope that as 1 Corinthians 6 says, you might come to your senses and repent and come and receive God's welcoming grace. There is a way to deal with things like abuse. And as I'm on the subject, in a situation where physical abuse is present or emotional abuse, protection of the victim is by far the best option. So if you need to get out of there, you just need to let us know and we can get you out of there and get help. What is the application of this? <laughs> you all look as dazed as I've been all week. <laughs> Some of you look really cross, actually. And that's okay. I want you to be able to talk about it. I want you to be able to come forward and say, okay, I want to pick you up on this. That's fine. I would like to have to do it without a suit of armor. Um, but please do talk. What about application? Well, there's, there's various points of application on this. Uh, I want to speak to the unhappy couple. Uh, to those who are in a married relationship just now, who are struggling with life together, who for various reasons largely unrelated to adultery, are, are, are finding things to be very strained, to be very difficult, unpleasant in the house, unpleasant for one another, unpleasant for children, etc. Um, you, you need to recognize that your dissatisfaction in marriage might just be the very seedbed that leads to divorce. And I want to encourage you to know the benefits the essential nature of early intervention uh, about getting help um, I don't want people to go away from this service today thinking about where permission lies like the Pharisees were thinking I, I want people to go away hearing Jesus saying I've come to conquer the hardness of your heart and make it so that you will magnify me in your marriage. Because fundamentally, let's face it, God's design for marriage is that marriage among Christians is supposed to tell the truth about the gospel, about the relationship between Christ and his church. To the unhappy couple, I want to say, please do speak to a, a brother or sister that you know well and admit your difficulty. Ask for help. Ask for prayer. Speak to your spouse, speak to your pastors. Um, 
I, I saw this week a statistic, a scary statistic from a, a church uh, statistician who said women in troubled marriages are far more likely to look for help than their husbands. Uh, brothers, can I speak to you particularly? Um, you have blind spots. And uh, it is not a strength to not admit your weakness. It is a mark of real courage and strength to come forward and say, I'm in trouble and I need help. And I want to say that you're welcome to do that. Uh, to speak to any of us in the pastoral team, to speak to your elder. If you're not a member of the church, you just need to phone the office, make an appointment, come and see us. Please do not suffer on your own and do not in think that you can just not deal with a situation. And be conscious as well of the cultural pressures, even personal pressures that press in on you in these difficult times where there is a pressure to focus on the individual rather than the community. A pressure to focus on just what will make me happy rather than what is actually going to be whole, the holy thing to do in this situation. There might even be a desperation if your marriage is in a difficult situation to pursue that which will bring you quickest relief rather than pursue that thing that will require endurance but in the end, joy. To the church, uh, we need to make sure that Charlotte Chapel is a place where those who are divorced are not treated like second-class citizens. We can look at people who have been divorced even those who've been remarried, and we can look with suspicion, we can look with judgment, we can fail to integrate them fully into the life of the church. As I said earlier, there can be this persistent, low-level shunning, like they don't get invited to dinner ever. Well, we need to be warned against that. We need to understand, help, we need help to understand, and this, these passages help us to understand the plight and experience of the divorce, to make sure that they feel safe, to be able to come out and talk about their experiences, to let them know that their feelings are a normal response to the end of what is a one flesh union. It's going to be painful. It's going to be really hard. But that we suffer with them. And we help them as best we can. We need to understand that even if we've not been through those experiences, you know plenty of passages in the Bible that speak of betrayal, that speak of hurt. You've not been through it? Take them to one of these. God knows. We have a lot to say. We don't have anything to say to people who experience that hurt. We have a lot to say. In fact, the gospel is the only thing that's worth listening to in these kind of situations. We need to be really good at addressing the shame that divorced people can know. Noticing those who are ashamed necessitates that you make the move to reach out to them and serve them as best you can. We need to be really good at addressing the guilt as well of those who are divorced. There can be not just a low-level shunning from those in the church family, but there can be, there can be a tendency to withdraw from those who have been. Some can have a self-loathing attitude. Some can be saying things to themselves, how can I be, have been so stupid as to love that person? How can I not see this coming? I'm a, I must be stupid. Not true. We need to help people see the truth 
about their situation. We need to help them see the truth about Jesus who loved others with his whole heart but still knew rejection. Jesus who knows how to give a perfect love and yet be spat on and deserted and left for dead. He knows. Tell them they're not stupid for hanging in there as long as they did. And when we talk with someone who struggles with the guilt of divorce, we should do the same with them as we do with anyone who struggles with guilt after any kind of sin that's committed. We encourage them to repent if they have sinned under God's welcoming grace. We take them to the cross. We show them the gospel, the faith full, all-enduring love of God our Father who embraces the prodigals, pig dirt and all, who expresses his love with the marks of adoption, a ring for the finger, shoes for the feet, a robe. Help. We must be a church that helps one another to repent. And helps one another to rejoice. To those who are divorced. It is true what you will read in scripture. God hates divorce. But as much as God hates any sin. Divorce is forgivable you know. Uh, If you've been divorced for a reason that is not permitted by the Bible. Forgiveness is possible and is in fact necessary freely offered in fact maybe you're pained by reflecting all the ways you wish things had been different maybe haunted by past mistakes maybe feel guilt maybe you wonder how it's impacted your children everything like this it can be painful well you can know the cleansing of the gospel and the care of christ I love 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to go there. 1 Corinthians 6. If I can find it. 1 Corinthians 6, which reminds us. Oh, where is it? Oh, yeah. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, what's the word? Where? Where? What happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And of course, two Corinthians five. We know that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Whatever your role was in divorce, God cleans your wounds, removes the shame draws us ever more deeply into Christ, our groom, our husband, 
who will never leave us nor forsake us. Brothers and sisters, realize this. The whole of Scripture is told as a story of a broken marriage. Do you see that? We were made to be one with God. That's the picture of Eden, isn't it? It's the glorious honeymoon. But we are the adulterous bride. We are the cause of broken relationships. We're all betrayers at some level because of sin. We have something in common, therefore, with those who have been divorced. We're all in equal need of being restored. And we should hear this story and marvel at God's endurance of shame. As, even as Adam read to us earlier from Hosea chapter 2, the prospect of God, is he about to divorce Israel? Is he about to divorce his people? The people he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. At one point he's got the certificate in hand, as Jeremiah 3 shows us. And Isaiah 50 as well, I believe. But no, he woos her back, speaks tenderly to her, dresses her, comforts her, welcomes her, restores her. He knows what it's like to pursue love and have it rejected. And yet by his grace, conquer unfaithfulness. His story ends differently from the story of our own divorce stories. Our story ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation where we are seated with him, Jesus Christ, in Revelation 19 and in 20 and 21. The picture of Christ the groom who beautifies his bride who makes the one who is unclean spotless, without blemish. How? How is this possible? Because on the cross 2,000 years ago, he took on our sin upon himself. The death he died, he died in our place. He made away with all of our unfaithfulness, all of our adultery, all of our sin, so that we who come to trust in that blood Repenting of our sin, putting our faith, banking everything on Jesus Christ who died, not only that was raised again to life three days later, can know forgiveness of sin. An eternal praise of our groom and our King Jesus in the days ahead. The gospel of Christ crucified for our sins is the foundation of our lives. Marriage exists to display it. And God has promised he is faithful to keep us. Shall we bow our heads and let's pray together.